This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hey, this is Tucker Booth with Rappers Don't Golf for FromTheBackTees.com. Got another great guest today. Kevin Robbins has been chronicling the life of the iconic or iconoclastic, if you will, Payne Stewart, who passed away 20 years ago this year. His book chronicles the last year or two of his life and is called The Last Stand of Payne Stewart. It's coming out this October from Hachette Books. Very pleased to have Kevin Robbins on the podcast. How are you doing, Kevin? Uh, really good and very good to be with you, Tucker. Thank you. Well, great to have you. And, you know, I imagine most of my listeners are well aware of the legacy of the great Payne Stewart. But in case you are brand new to golf and listening to this podcast, William Payne Stewart was alive from January 30th, 1957 to October 25th, 1999, and was a winner around the world. He had 24 professional wins career-wise, 11 of those coming on the PGA Tour. Three of those were major championships. He's most known for his iconic performances in the U.S. Opens that he performed in, as well as his big win at the PGA Championship. I would dare say that the most memorable moment from Payne's career was draining the 15-foot putt to win in the 1999 U.S. Open at Pinehurst, where he beat a young Phil Mickelson and had a hot Tiger Woods and Vijay Singh right on his heels. He died shortly after the Ryder Cup of the same year on his way to Champions Golf Course for that event. Kevin, I guess I'm going to let you take the ball and run with it from here. Tell me a little bit about why, first of all, you wanted to write this book about Payne Stewart and where all the motivation to specifically look at the last couple years of his life came from. Right, thanks. Um... Well, I, uh, I would answer it this way, that Payne Stewart died 20 years ago, and as you said at the top of the, the show, um, a lot of people in golf know that, know his legacy, and uh, I, don't, I don't argue that. I think a lot of people think they do know Payne Stewart's career and his character and his legacy, um, but I thought it was, uh, given 20 years since his death, it was worth a revisit. I thought that his, his life and his career uh, and, and his legacy, to use your word, deserved a reappraisal. So um, that's, how, that's, that's how really it all got started. And then one night, I remember um, it was a Saturday night late in, in 2017, and uh, I was just really fooling around on, on the web, and I stumbled across the, the final National Transportation Board, the Safety Board, NTSB, report of the incident on October 25th that killed Stewart and five others. And, uh, you know, as, as these cover, government documents can be, it's, it's exquisitely detailed. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a detached clinical overview of a very dramatic um, and, and human tragedy. Uh, it's more than 1,400 pages long. And um, uh, by the time it was released, Tucker, um, the, the two previous book on, books on Stewart's life had already been published. In fact, both of them came out very shortly after his death. Um, and, and so I knew that uh, the full scope and scale of the aircraft disaster that killed Stewart uh, were, were still perhaps unknown to most of the public unless they, like me, had stumbled across it on the Internet. So that's really where it all began. And I, I, I started with the notion that I, I would... Uh, I would frame the, the entire book around the events of October 25th, 1999, and, and to 
familiarize you and perhaps your listeners with what happened that day. Payne and five other people, including two crew, took off that morning from Orlando and uh, about 30 minutes into the flight, um, as they were uh, ascending to um, a certain altitude, uh, all radio contact was lost. And when the plane was supposed to bank left or, or west to go to Texas, it kept flying straight and it kept climbing. Um, so the, uh, the air traffic controllers and soon the Federal Aviation Administration knew that they had a problem on board that Learjet 35. The Learjet flew for four hours. Um, the, no one really knows exactly what happened uh, aboard that plane. Uh, it is known that the, the cabin depressurized. Uh, no one knows why. Um, when, the, when the plane came down in South Dakota, it was eight miles in the air. It was touching 50,000 feet in altitude. Both engines quit. They, uh, they exhausted the fuel tanks. The plane came virtually straight down, and uh, from eight miles high, it gathered it gathered a terrific speed, and it hit the ground almost at the speed of sound. It never did quite break the sound barrier, but it's coming down very fast and and uh, almost in a, in a nose-down attitude. So there was very little evidence uh, in the crater in South Dakota, nothing that investigators could um, look at and determine without a doubt as, as, uh, as the cause of, of what happened that day. So as, an, as a, a pilot friend of mine, who um, helped me with the uh, the section about the flight? As he put it, it's the least mysterious mystery in the history of aviation. Everybody knows that the cabin depressurized. Everybody knows that because of that, the six people aboard uh, were deprived of oxygen very early in the flight and died. Uh, they were dead for most of the uh, four and a half hour flight from Florida to South Dakota. And um, at any rate, that's uh, that's kind of how it all began. Was I wanted to I wanted to uh, uh, tell the story of this mysterious flight that day. Well, and I remember getting the live news updates about Stewart's plane crash back when it happened on television. Yeah. And I dare say it's one of the most shocking moments in golf history, especially in modern times, and especially considering Payne had just won a U.S. Open in unlikely fashion over these, you know, new wave of talent guys that were nipping at his heels. And then suddenly he's gone, seemingly right as he's kind of hit his peak, or at least close, because you, you say in the book he was 42, so that's not exactly like he may be playing the best golf going forward. However, he just won a U.S. Open, so dare to dream. Um, so I, I understand why you'd want to kind of focus in on that, but you also really kind of laser in on the last couple of years of his life and the seeming turnaround he had, not only in his golf game with winning, but also in his personality, temperament, outlook on life, etc. I guess give us a little taste of that before we get into the contents of the book about what some of that transformation in Stewart's persona and character was. Yeah, I will, and, and I'm happy to do this because this is where I think people who think they know the legacy and the story of Payne Stewart might not know the entire legacy and, and story of Payne Stewart. So um, part of the uh, story of his, his win at the U.S. Open at Pinehurst was this, um, uh, this testimony that uh, he gave uh, in each round when after he traveled with meeting with the press where he talked about his newfound Christianity and uh, that became 
that became kind of the story of the day, uh, especially after he won. And I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of, um, if we can call it the redemption of Payne Stewart, that's what they think of, is they trace it to his faith. It, but that's only part of it, Tucker. Um, there were there were other elements to his return to um, personal fulfillment and professional fulfillment in 99. So that's really what this book is about. I mean, sure, it's a, it chronicles a, a fantastic season in golf, not just for Payne Stewart, but for, for, for just for golf of all time. It was one of, of, the, of the game's most incredible seasons. But, uh, but it more, it's more a, a, a character sketch about um, the changes he made in his life and what those changes looked like to uh, people who are watching him. Well, and like I alluded to in the introduction, Payne was considered kind of an icon or an iconoclast, depending on who the observer was. I mean, we all remember him dressing in his very peacockish golf outfits with his plus fours or knickerbocker pants and his Ivy caps. And, you know, these very old-timer-looking golf outfits that didn't quite match the good old boy beer-swilling fishing, smoking, dipping personality that he seemed to have coming from Missouri. And if anything, minus the flawless golf swing, he really kind of reminds me of like an old-timer Bubba Watson or something. I mean, is that a fair comparison? It's, it's interesting you say, Bubba. Um, I've asked, uh, I asked many of, the, of the, the players of his generation who helped me with this book um, who they thought most resembled Payne Stewart in the modern game. And I, I thought uh, it, the answer might be Bubba Watson, but actually, actually the answer was no one. Um, uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time, Tucker, with uh, four principal, four uh, what you might call secondary characters in the book: Cal Sutton, Tom Lehman, Marco Mira, and Paul Azinger. Those four. Uh, three of those guys were on that '99 team. Azinger was not, but of those four. Paul had the deepest and most sustained friendship with Payne, so that's why uh, he's a big part of my book. Um, but to a man, those guys say there's really not anybody in the game today who reminds them of Payne Stewart. I will say, uh, having researched this guy for two and a half years and really spent you know most <laughs> most of my life during that time thinking about him and trying to unravel his mystique, that. Um, but I still think it's Bubba Watson, you know, somebody who gets out there and, and plays an intuitive game, you know, and, and you know, Payne, like Bubba, Payne Stewart was not a mechanical golfer. He didn't think about swing positions and angles and where the club face was at the top of the swing. He felt it all through his fingertips and through his feet. And that's, you know, when I think of players in, t- in today's game, who played that style of golf. Bubba Watson is the first one I think of. Well, and also the hyper-Christianity meets the contentiousness with galleries and the press, which I also think Bubba seems to do quite a bit. And it seems to be this kind of pendulum swing in his heart back and forth from trying to play the good guy role and then also being kind of sinful in the way that he deals with people. I mean, I know early on, Payne was perceived to be somewhat of an iconoclast brat, not only by galleries, but especially by the pros. And you touch on that in the book. Tell me a little bit about how Payne gained the reputation early on for being so hard to deal with at times. Yeah, petulant is the word, and churlish um, that I, I think of the most when 
when I think about pain and as, as a young player. And I would just, let me just clarify something because I, I'm not I'm not convinced that, that Payne Stewart was was hyper Christian hyper Christian. He was he he would speak about it, um, but he wouldn't he wouldn't testify really or preach to people. He didn't try to to change people. Um, and uh, and so I just want to be careful about portraying him in that way. He was he was quietly Christian, um, but unlike a lot of players, and I think of for instance Tom Lehman is a good example. Uh, unlike Tom Lehman, uh, Payne wasn't devout. He wasn't uh, as faithful. He didn't go to church as frequently as somebody like Tom Lehman might, and he certainly wasn't a scholar of the Bible in any stretch, as, as, as Tom Lehman, I think, would be. Uh, Payne wasn't an authority on, on, uh, on, on the Baptist faith. He, he was a Baptist. Uh, he was um, influenced by his son, Aaron, who was a, just a boy of 11. Uh, his son and his daughter went to a Christian school in Orlando, Florida, and they're really the ones who taught Payne uh, what he knew about the Bible. Um, Payne later did join a men's fellowship group, but, you know, he's a PGA Tour player. He's not home a lot, so he didn't meet with them all that regularly. But I just want to be clear that I don't think, you know, Payne wasn't an in-your-face Christian. He was, he was quiet about it. He did speak to the press about it, but really only in 1999. And it wasn't in a way, uh, it wasn't in a, like a, His father was in a U.S. Open as well, correct? Or his father had been a, a amateur that had competed in major tournaments? Isn't that right? Yeah, all, well, yeah, all of that. Bill Stewart um, played in the, I can't remember the date, Tucker, but it was the um, U.S. Open at Olympic where Jack Fleck beat Ben Hogan. It was that one. Like, I believe it was mid-50s, if I'm not mistaken. I was looking into yeah. this. But yeah, okay, yeah. so he had learned golf from his dad at a very early age and had learned how to be a gentleman, if you will, at a very early age. Um, yeah, well, uh, I don't know about the gentleman part, but, uh, but yeah, he, he certainly learned how to be a, a good golfer from his dad. Okay, so they, these are kind of what you might call roguish Missouri types who have money, have influence, but are probably a little bit all over the place with their ethics and morals. Is that what we're saying here? No, 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 not at all. Let me just let me let me take that one step at a time. First, he did not come from money. His father was a furniture salesman. And they lived in a, a very modest neighborhood, in a very modest home, in a very modest neighborhood of 
middle class Springfield, Missouri. Uh, his father was incredibly passionate about golf and made all kinds of sacrifices to join Hickory Hills Country Club, which is kind of like this mid-level country club in, in Springfield, not really famous for anything other than I think Herman Kaiser uh, grew up playing there as well. That must have been what threw me. I, I read Country Club and I thought they must come from old money. No, no, no money, actually. I mean, they were, I mean, they weren't poor, but uh, they lived comfortably, uh, but within their means. And, and so, uh, no, this is not a stereotypical rich kid from a fancy country club at all. Um, and uh, ethically and morally, I, uh, boy, that's, that's tricky territory. You know, I was, I was a reporter for 22 years before I, I, I left to teach at the University of Texas and write books. And, and so um, I have uh, I have very strict uh, definitions of what I can and cannot report. And I'm a little uncomfortable getting in someone's head if I'm not certain from other uh, uh, sources what that person was thinking or doing. All right. I mean, I can back off that. I guess more what I was kind of getting at was that he seemed to be a party boy type. He seemed to kind of have that fraternal type instinct. No, no, he didn't seem it. He was it. Right. He embodied that. He embodied that very much. And he was just like a guy who liked to have a good time. He liked to drink. He smoked. He, you know, he liked to date around. Um, you know, he was just like, uh, you know, living life as a, as, a, as a college student at SMU who played on the golf team. You know, he was, a, he was an athlete and um, he was incredibly cocky and, uh, um, you know, just he just like he the world was at his feet and 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 he knew it. But uh, two failed attempts at Q school humbled him a little bit, and so he went to Asia and uh, and uh, uh, excuse me, in Australia for a couple of seasons to play over there to to work to get better, and he did, and he finally qualified in 1983. And when he came out, you know, he's just like the same brat uh, sort of swaggery presence you know again just like tall blonde good-looking guy but he hadn't proved himself he hadn't won a golf tournament he barely got out of out of his third uh, attempt at q school and so i think that you know rubbed a, a lot of tour players the wrong way you know on the tour you got to earn your image and for pain it seemed like uh you know he thought he deserved it just because of um, how, how sure of himself he was. Well, and it also irked him to no end early on that the press was so critical of him, especially when he wasn't playing well. Uh, that doesn't seem that different from many of the most legendary players in the game, but he made a point of letting them know how much he disliked the way they treated him, oftentimes by blowing them off completely. Am I right there? You're right there, yeah. That happened. Um, you know, it's, that's such a tricky thing to to uh, to handle when um, when when reporting on an athlete who who doesn't perform well um, and for much of Payne's early career he was an athlete who didn't perform well and he did win in nineteen in nineteen eighty three in the Quad Cities in Iowa uh, so you know he he secured his his place on the PGA Tour. Uh, his first season, but then he would go long spells without even contending, and uh, it even earned him a nickname, Avis. And I think Avis, the car, car rental company, used to have a, a commercial campaign that had something to do with being second best to Hertz and how they were proud of that. Um, 
Oh snap! So he, he had this reputation as being, you know, he had this this stylish swing. Um, as you mentioned later in his career, he had this stylish ensemble with plus fours and silk hosiery and gold tip shoes and elegant flat caps. Um, he had he had everything but but wins. Um, and, and yet he still portrayed this uh, outwardly this image of a guy who. Um, you know, knew who he was and knew his place in the game and was one of the game's stars. So uh, he was a contradiction, Tucker, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, the person you compare him to early on in the book is the great Gatsby and kind of somebody that was an enigma, obviously, and a lot of people idolized, but they seem to be a contradiction of terms personally in lots of different ways. And obviously, Payne was... Uh, not just early on, but even all the way to the end, performing the way he did and then passing on the way he did in such a crazy and somewhat mysterious way. I guess let's get a little bit to the meat of your book, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart. And you kind of start the opening chapter at Olympic for the U.S. Open prior to the one that he won in 99. So we're in 1998 at this point. And he's at Olympic, and this is sort of the new version of Payne Stewart that emerged after years in the wilderness of not playing well at all and probably doubting himself and wondering if he'd ever be great again. And then he suddenly shows up and contends well for three of the four days at Olympic and also starts to be very different with the media and his peers. Give us a little bit of the taste of the Olympic chapter. Sure. So, yeah, June 1998, Payne Stewart hasn't won in since, since, excuse me, since 1995 at the Shell Houston Open. Um, he's not a factor uh, uh, in the, the week before the tournament. Nobody's talking about him as a, as a favorite. Um, you know, people have their eyes now on Phil Mickelson, on David Duvall, on Tiger Woods, this new generation of hard-hitting bombers. And Payne's not even in that, in that category. And then uh, he opens the tournament, and I might get the, the scores wrong, uh, on the phone with you here. I'm literally in the wilderness of Missouri right now, Tucker, and my book is nowhere near me, but I think he shot four under par 66 on opening day on Thursday. <clears throat> and he's got the lead. He ended up with the wire-to-wire lead. Uh, so he opens with 66 on Thursday. He posts another good score, not quite as great, on Friday. Hangs in there on Saturday, and he's in the last group on Sunday, Lee Jansen's playing a couple of groups ahead, and until the back nine on Sunday, Payne is clinging to this this lead, which has narrowed considerably by the time Sunday mid round has has, has uh, rolled around. A um, couple of things happened that week that showed us uh, a, a new glimpse of uh, the reform Payne Stewart. First, the first thing is Friday. Round two, the whole cut on the 18th green at Olympic Club is sort of back left. Payne Stewart, like many other players in the field that day, Payne Stewart had a 10-footer for birdie. He was hole high, but he was right of the hole. So he had this sweeping right-to-left breaker, okay? And the green slants from the back to the front. The USGA botched this hole position. They should never have cut a hole there. Payne had 10, th- 10 feet for birdie. He had 25 feet for par. He missed the hole, and the ball tumbled and tumbled and tumbled until it settled 25 feet away. Tom Lane and four putted that day. Many other players, 
three putted that day like Payne did. But here's the thing. A younger Payne Stewart might have thrown some kind of fit, and he might have marched up to the media center and complained about the USGA's discretion and poor judgment in cutting a hole there that day. And he would have been perfectly entitled to. Other players did. But he didn't. And people in the room noticed that. He took full responsibility for missing the putt. And he did not blame anything or anyone else for his bogey on 18. Now let's go to Sunday. He gets to number 12, a par 4. And, of course, the fairways at the Olympic Club are really hard to find because many of them slant one way or the other, or can't, you might say. So Payne nails a three-wood down the fairway of this par four hole, and it settles in the middle of the fairway in a sand-filled divot. All right? At this point, Payne has been put on the clock for slow play because he's trying to figure out how to hit a shot out of this sand-filled divot. He's only got like 120 yards, but he doesn't know how to hit the shot out of the sand-filled divot. He ends up hitting a poor shot into a bunker, making bogey, which eventually led to, after a few more mistakes on the back nine, his losing to, to Lee Jansen by one. So that's a pretty unlucky break. Any other golfer may bemoan and begrudge that forever after that. Exactly. And, 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 and a younger Payne Stewart might have gone to the media center and complained about the bad luck and fate and the USGA's rule of not declaring sand-filled divots as uh, ground under repair and a million other things, but he didn't. He took full responsibility for losing the tournament. He gave Lee Jansen all credit for winning the tournament. And at that moment, his impression, his, his image, and the impression and people had of Payne Stewart began to change in a positive way. Yeah, it sounds like a more mature man, somebody that's, that's truly kind of rounding out their soul a little bit and kind of realizing the bigger picture. So that was kind of where people first started to get a sense that pain was changing characteristically. But now we might as well move forward to the second chapter, and we're talking about the Pebble chapter. And when you say Pebble, you're referencing the Pebble Beach Pro-Am from 1999, where he won and kind of regained his form. Kind of take us through that event and kind of move forward from there. Yeah, right. So I would say, though, that, that while um, the 98 U.S. Open was certainly significant in the, the reparation of his image, it didn't prove anything. It, you know, you can't prove that you've changed after four rounds of golf. So it was, but it was an early hint. It was a signal. It was a sign. And in 1999, in February of 1999, at the AT&T Pro-Am at Pebble Beach, a tournament, a course, by the way, that he always played well, even in his fruit years. It was just a course that seemed to bring out the best in him which is all the more tragic because the 2000 U.S. Open was, of course, at Pebble Beach, but maybe we'll get that in a moment. Sure. So uh, <laughs> the weather that week was lousy, as it often is, right? If the Bing Crosby get clam um, it was It was a rain-shortened tournament. They canceled the final round. Payne had a one-stroke lead after 54 holes, so he was declared the winner. And that was great because Payne broke his slump. He hadn't won since the 95 Shell Houston Open. And now he's won again. He almost won at Olympic, but he didn't. But now he's won again. But, and here's the other but, 
it wasn't a four-round tournament. It wasn't 72 holes. And inside, and I know this from uh, from the reporting that I did with people close to him, inside, Payne did not feel like he had validated the tournament because it was shortened to 54 holes. He hadn't gone out for four rounds and held off the rest of the field. He didn't feel like he'd won, even though in the record books he had. And certainly he was happy to cash the check and he was happy to take home the trophy and he was happy for the exemption, et cetera, et cetera. But inside, it didn't feel valid because it wasn't four rounds. So that's where we are in the spring of 1999. He's won this 54-hole tournament and he feels like he can win again. Given the chance, if everything falls his way in a 72-hole tournament, he can do it again. So, okay, he's got his swagger back, if you will, a, a little bit. But like you said, not all the way. He still feels like he's got more to prove. What was the big leap from the Pebble Beach Pro-Am to finally getting this U.S. Open? There wasn't one. There wasn't a big leap. In fact, he didn't play all that well leading up to the U.S. Open that June at Pinehurst. Uh, he missed the cut in Memphis the week before. And maybe that was a blessing because he and his caddy, Mike Hicks, left Memphis on Saturday to uh, go to Pinehurst and have a couple of extra days to prepare. Back then, Payne was working with an instructor by the name of Chuck Cook. And Chuck met them uh, in Pinehurst. Chuck knew Pinehurst very well. He had conducted some Golf Digest schools there with uh, the late Davis Love Jr., and so he knew the grounds, he knew the swales and the hollows and the dells of that number two course uh, better than most people. So Payne was fortunate to have Chuck Cook as his teacher at this time in 1999. And so on that Saturday and that Sunday, a week the week before the, the, the championship was to begin, Stewart and Chuck Cook and Stewart's caddy, a guy named Mike Hicks, who's also from North Carolina, they went out with just short clubs and a yardage book. They didn't hit drivers. They didn't hit approach shots. They just worked on these little bump and run shots uh, from off the green that everyone who plays Pinehurst number two and in those incredible Donald Ross, Ross Dome greens has to play. And they were figuring out the best places to miss approach shots. And they were figuring out the places where they absolutely didn't want to miss an approach shot. And all of that preparation, those two days, that's what won him the U.S. Open. So it wasn't a big thing. It was kind of a little thing. It was a judgment call. It was a, it was a choice to emphasize preparation on this small thing, the shots around the greens. So like a lot of these players say, it really is about the short game for the win versus the long game, which is obviously more sexy to the viewer. Uh, I would say, was there any kind of internal transformation that happened at all between the Pro-Am and Pinehurst? I mean, was there any kind of extra character transformation that kind of helped give him new resolve to, to summon what he could to win that Open? I think so, Tucker. I mean, but again, I think this was all a very gradual thing. This wasn't sudden. This was a result of uh, maturity. Uh, Payne is 42 years old at this point. He's, he's not a kid anymore. He's been married a long time. His kids are growing up. He's starting to miss them. He wants to scale back how many tournaments he plays. So that he can be home in Orlando more to, you know, watch his daughter Chelsea play volleyball, watch his son Aaron play flag football and baseball. So there was that. 
There was, of course, the faith angle that everyone knows. That was certainly influential. Um, the slump, I think the slump um, humbled Payne Stewart quite a bit. You know, think about it. From 1989, when he won the PGA Championship at Temper Lakes, to... 1991, when he won his first U.S. Open at Hazeltine, uh, he was one of the top players in the world. Everybody in the world who paid attention to golf could identify Payne Stewart from 300 yards away. He had a silhouette that everyone knew because of what he wore, how he walked, how he swung the golf club. And anytime there was an issue in golf, reporters would go to him to get his perspective on it. And because he was playing good golf, he was often in the media center after rounds talking about his play, which was usually good. And then, after 91, for a lot of reasons, he all of that disappears. He quits playing good golf. Oh, I shouldn't say he quits because it sounds like that it was an active choice. He no longer can play, can play good golf, so he's sort of less out there. And I think that affected him because he was somebody who wanted to be noticed, who wanted to be remembered, of course. And, uh, and now all of a sudden, he's just another, another guy. So um, I think, you know, certainly that was, was a part of this development in his, uh, in his character. And then there's another thing. So Paul Azinger was diagnosed with cancer in 1993. Paul and Payne were not close friends. But they were, they were, they were solidly good friends. They were like fraternity brothers. I think that's a good analogy. And when, Payne was, when Paul was diagnosed with cancer had to undergo treatments and quit playing. He lived in Tampa at the time. Um, he found himself kind of like questioning a lot of things. And Payne would come over from Orlando and they'd go fishing out on the, uh, in the Gulf and, and just spend time together. They wouldn't really talk about important things. They didn't like talk about the meaning of life. And they didn't discuss whether Payne with Paul was going to live or die. But, you know, just that time spent together, that meant a lot to Paul, and I think it meant a lot to Payne, too. I think Payne, through Paul and through Paul's illness, Payne saw his own mortality. So all of these factors, they come to a confluence in the summer of 99 as, as Payne's getting ready to play the 99 U.S. Open. He's just a more settled man. Uh, he's a more self-actualized man. He's just got his stuff together. Well, you know, and Feinstein writes eloquently about Azinger and Payne in A Good Walk Spoiled. I was just reading that a little while ago and kind of oh, yes. how Azinger found himself after you know, thinking it was going to pass on and, and Payne being such a huge part of that mental and emotional recovery. So, yeah, I, I definitely can, can empathize with, with that, having gone through it in my own life as well. Okay, so now Payne Stewart has just defeated young Phil Mickelson and torn his heart out for the first of many second-place U.S. Open finishes. <laughs> Tiger Woods and Vijay Singh, the two best players on the earth at that time, get beat by 42-year-old Payne Stewart, who is suddenly back from the dead and resurrected as a major champion. Now we move forward to the Ryder Cup, which was also a miraculous event. Not because Payne played great the entire time, but as you say, it really came down to the character exhibited by him later on in the tournament, which they won miraculously, though not necessarily by Payne's hand. That's true, but Tucker, we've got to talk about the, the final round of the U.S. Open. Okay, okay, back it up. <laughs> <laughs> because, because this is really, really critical. Um, so first, Payne plays these three solid rounds at the U.S. Open um, to 
put himself in the last group with, with Phil Mickelson. He leads Phil Mickelson by one um, and when the round begins. And Payne has put himself in that position by, uh, you guessed it, by missing all of those spots marked in the yardage book by Chuck Cook and Mike Hicks and Payne, those spots where you cannot miss a shot. Payne didn't miss a single approach. Now, he made some bogeys, but he never put himself in a spot where he brought double bogey into play. And that's what put, he played this cautious, mature, restrained kind of golf, which was contrasted sort of beautifully that week with the kind of golf that Tiger Woods and David Duvall and DJ Singh and Phil Mickelson were playing, where they just, you know, they'd rip driver on every hole and just hit it as far as they could and have short clubs in. Payne wasn't playing that kind of golf. He was hitting irons. He was hitting three woods. His driving distance that week, it's amazing, 258 yards on average. So anyway, Payne has put himself in the final group with Phil, Phil Mickelson, and they're like nipping at each other the entire round. Where it gets where it gets really like memorable and historic is the last three holes. Payne makes a 35-footer for par on 16. He makes a 10-footer, 8 to 10-footer for birdie on 17, and then he makes that historic, famous 15-footer on 18. So three one putts on the last three greens of that many feet, you know, with uh, 50 plus feet <laughs> to win the U.S. Open. And putting had always been Payne Stewart's biggest weakness. So all of a sudden he's turned his game upside down. He's made his weakness, his strength, and he's won himself the U.S. Open. And Phil didn't necessarily cough that U.S. Open up either, right? I mean, it, Phil, Phil played pretty stoic down the stretch there. Payne shot one under, Payne, uh, Phil shot even. So, yeah, I mean, Payne, uh, Phil, Phil missed a short putt on 17 that would have tied Payne's birdie. Payne made his first. I can't remember if Payne made his first or Phil made his first. I think Payne made his first, and then Phil's was inside Payne's by two feet. So Payne Phil had about six feet, and he missed it. And then he had, I don't know, 25 feet for birdie on 18, that would have uh, essentially forced the playoff, um, but he missed that putt too. No, Phil, Phil just Phil played good golf. He just got beat by a better player on that day. Well, game of inches too. Always, I think one of the other memories I have so much from that U.S. Open is not only that famous shot of Payne, you know, fist pumping and the, you know kicked leg out and just looking ecstatic, but then the aftermath, where instead of then turning around and putting on a big you know, show of might to the crowd. He goes over and comforts Phil in a really touching way, takes his face in his hands, tells him that he's got many more of these coming up and that he's definitely going to win, telling him that he's a new father and how special and meaningful that is compared to just winning trophies. And you can see that it touches Phil and Payne to the point where they're both misting up and in tears. I mean, that's got to be a different Payne Stewart than the one we're talking about from before, right? Yeah, yeah, another sign, another another example of the gradual uh, reformation of Payne Stewart's character. Uh, you might even call it redemption, but certainly. Now, let me just say something about that moment with Phil. Um, I cannot, I cannot grade the authenticity of that moment. It happened. It's undeniable. You can watch it on YouTube, and it happened. Um, maybe Payne Stewart. Um, 
maybe Payne Stewart was sincerely interested in helping Phil in that moment of loss. Uh, maybe he was doing it for television and for the crowd. We'll never know. We don't know. But he did do it. You're right. Uh, he did say those words that you said. He told he told Phil that he'd have his chances. He told Phil that the best thing is you're about to be a dad, and those two things were true. Phil had his chances, and he became a father. Well, that's a, an interesting footnote to add on to that, and it kind of plays into the whole icon versus iconoclast debate that goes on with Stewart. So, okay, he is now the U.S. Open champion. He has now gone on to the Ryder Cup in 99, which, as anybody remembers, was a miraculous victory for the United States in a dramatic comeback on the final day. Stewart did not play that much or that well in the Ryder Cup, but he did have a really amazing moment that once again, at least optically, spoke to his character on the final day of singles. So I don't know if you have more you'd like to share about that Ryder Cup experience for Payne or if you want to jump straight to the singles matches, but tell me a bit about that too. Yeah, and I do not doubt the sincerity or the authenticity of that moment, which we'll get to in a second. Um, yeah, to set up. So Payne Stewart made the Ryder Cup team. That was his big goal that season. He basically secured that when he won at Pebble Beach. He nailed it, of course, when he won the U.S. Open. He hadn't played. I think he missed three Ryder Cups, and Payne really loved the Ryder Cup. He loved everything about it, the spirit, the fellowship, the patriotism, all of that. So he was really thrilled to be a part of that team. Um, you know, he was among the elder members of the team, he and O'Mara and Sutton uh, and Tom Lehman. <clears throat> so he felt like he had a leadership role. He felt like, uh, I mean, he wasn't formally a captain, but, you know, he felt a bit like a, a leader on that team, and that's what he wanted to portray. Um, you're right, Tucker. He didn't play all that well. He didn't win a single point. He did have one game. Um, he even got sat on, on Saturday. His captain, Ben Crenshaw, sat him on Saturday afternoon because he just wasn't putting well. He didn't have it. Payne was fine with that. He understood. That Saturday night, after Ben Crenshaw wagged his finger and, and told the the press and a television audience of millions around the world that he had a, a little feeling about fate. Uh, Crenshaw went back to the team hotel and all the players were there with their wives and uh, the captain asked his players and wives to go around the room and he wanted everybody to say a little something about what that Ryder Cup had meant to them. You know, Crenshaw didn't know what else to do. They were down 10-6. It looked incredibly unlikely that they were going to be able to, to win on single Sunday. Uh, Europe was stacked that year. Sir, young Sergio Garcia, Colin Montgomery was in his peak form. Um, so, you know, Crenshaw just wanted people to think positive thoughts. He wanted them to be grateful for the moment, even if it had nothing to do with winning the golf tournament or the, 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 the Ryder Cup. So that's what players did. They went around the room and they spoke from the heart and, uh, they opened up in a way that golfers don't often do. You know, golf being an individual sport sometimes lacks the uh, the spirit and the fellowship of, of being a part of the team, of a team. And that night they were a team. Uh, Payne Stewart, when it was his turn to speak, he looked at Marco Mira and he said, you're fortunate. Uh, your father's here to watch you. My father can't be here. Bill Stewart had died many years earlier. Uh, and so, you know, Payne's message was, Think about something. Think about something more important about golf, about what this moment means to your family. 
Um, and something, you know, pretty fundamental shifted that night with uh, the players, and they came out the next day and staged a big rally. Payne was in the last singles match with Colin Montgomery, and throughout the match <clears throat> had listened to and endured a bunch of abuse from the Boston fans at the Country Club in Brookline against Colin Montgomery. Fans, uh, people in the gallery were calling his name and names. They were, they were uh, disrupting his putting preparation, uh, talking in the middle of his swing. A couple of times, Payne even admonished the the gallery to uh, to stop, just like cease and desist. Wait a minute, you're saying Boston oh, wow. fans are jerks? Come on now, come on. <laughs> I think you said that, Tucker. I didn't. <laughs> Just kidding. No, something about the Ryder Cup, it brings out something in, in all fans, doesn't it? Oh, we're out here in L.A. We jest, we jest. But okay, so so he's he's been razzed by the fans and take us into this singles match with Montgomery. Yeah, and, and Payne has jumped to Colin Montgomery's defense. And Colin Montgomery was villain number one in 1999 in golf. People love to hate on on Colin Montgomery. And so um, it was a little surprising and a little uncharacteristic for, for Payne Stewart, especially in the Ryder Cup, to come to an opponent's defense. But that's what he did. Again, they're in the last match. They're standing in 17 fairway when Justin Leonard holds the putt in front of them to basically secure the match after Olafable misses his putt. It's over. And it's bedlam. It's mayhem. People are running all over the place, hugging and jumping up and down and chanting, the cup is over. But Colin Montgomery and Payne Stewart had a match to finish and finish it they were going to do. So they come to the to the 18th hole, um, tied, and Colin Montgomery is on the green in two. Payne Stewart is in the bunker in two. And instead of having... Colin Montgomery make try to make this putt with twenty thousand people. At this point, you know these people are they're loud, they're spirited, they, uh, their team has won the cup. <clears throat> Payne Stewart wasn't going to let anybody get in the way of Colin Montgomery anymore that day, and he walked over and he said, "I think we've had enough, haven't we?" And, Co- and Colin said, "Yes, I think we have." And Payne bent down, picked up his coin shook Colin Montgomery's hand and gave him the match. Now, that might not look like a big deal because the Ryder Cup was over, and that that match really meant nothing. It didn't mean anything to the team score, at least. But it meant something to both of those players because individual Ryder Cup records are important to people who play golf. And so Payne Stewart was basically giving, giving away his opportunity to secure another win in the Ryder Cup, and he's giving it to Colin Montgomery. And that, again, is another signal, another sign, another hint that we're looking at a new paint store. Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously not Jack Nicholas having that Ryder Cup back in the day, but it surely shows a, a tr- transformation in his character and obviously yeah. a kinder, humbler, gentler Payne Stewart. So I definitely a, see that. A Payne Stewart who was thinking about somebody else. Yeah, for sure. He wasn't just he wasn't just thinking about himself. He was thinking about Colin Montgomery. He was thinking about all of the abuse he'd suffered that day, and uh, he was looking at a bigger picture that earlier earlier in his life he never looked at. So I guess now we flash back 
or forward or however you want to say that to the final tragic moments of his life. And I know we covered it a bit at the beginning, but the book essentially ends with him flying to the final tournament of his career and then his plane tragically crashing in the Dakotas. What else would the listener need to know about that that hasn't been covered or should they just buy your book and read it there? <laughs> How about both? Okay. <laughs> How about if we talk about it a little bit, but I, but I don't tell the whole story. Um, so, yeah, so again, um, this, this is the, the, the part of the book that literally few people know because the NTSB report uh, wasn't officially unclassified or released until well after most of the Payne Stewart stories had been written and, and uh, were filed away. Um, so Payne is qualified for the Tour Championship, um, one of 30 players to play that fall at Tour at uh, Champions Golf Club in Houston. He has a quick business deal that he wants to look into in Dallas on October 25th, 1999. He gets up, he kisses his kids goodbye and his wife, who leave the house to take Tracy, uh, his wife, to take the uh, kids to school. That's the last time he saw them. That's the last time they saw him. He drives to Orlando's uh, International Airport, where he has a Learjet 35 waiting for him and three other passengers, two of whom are his business agents, and the other is a golf course architect who worked for Jack Nicholas at the time. They were going to go look at a piece of property in Dallas that might turn into a golf course. Bruce Borland was the architect on board. He would have he would have done most of the work. Payne Stewart would have been kind of like the the architect of record, the guy they could put whose name they could put on the scorecard designed by Payne Stewart. And they take off into um, a, a beautiful uh, beautiful morning for flying in Florida. And then something goes wrong. Four and a half hours later, after the uh, the events that day had just riveted a nation internationally, CNN was carrying the, the coverage live. All of the networks had broken into regular programming to uh, tell the nation that a plane carrying Payne Stewart was flying at 50,000 feet well off course, and no one inside the cockpit was responding to calls inside. It was something that everybody, I, I think I interviewed 87 people for this book. Many of them were involved in golf, and some of them were not. Everybody remembers what, what they were doing the morning and the afternoon of October 25th, 1999. It reminds me of the OJ chase down the highway or something. Yeah. As far as my life goes, because I'm 40, it's one of those moments that you do not forget where you were. Yeah, very much so, because because nobody knew how it was going to end. Um, it wasn't so much that that the plane was flying aimlessly. That's, I don't know, I mean, I hate to say this, but that was compelling enough. But it left a question, you know, when was this plane going to come down and where? Was it going to come down on a city? Um, no one knew. Now, I will say aviation officials uh, knew. They figured it out very quickly. Um, because that was their job. They needed to make sure that plane wasn't going to come down in Omaha or Des Moines. Um, so they calculated um, all of the factors that you would you would think of, you know, uh, fuel capacity, speed, wind direction and velocity, et cetera. And they knew pretty early 
that if this plane continued on its course, and it was on autopilot, so it was going to continue on its course, that it would fall in a prairie, and that's exactly what it did. So you say that it's the least mysterious mystery, or, or someone said that to you that knows aeronautics. Uh, and you've detailed that a bit, which is that they already figured it out early on what had happened, though not every bit of what happened is clearly known. Is this something where there's any sense that it could be foul play or anything other than just manual error? I mean, I know I read that the Stewart family sued Learjet and went after them for years afterwards. It was a messy court battle. They did not end up winning in the end. Um, is there anything that could be derived from that conspiratorial or is it simply just tragic accident? No, there's, there's, there's nothing conspiratorial about it. Um, they, they had a, uh, the, uh, the Air National Guard and the uh, United States Air Force flew escort missions alongside the plane for almost the duration of the, of the entire flight. Uh, pilots were able to get very close to the Learjet they could see that the windows were frosted over. That was a clear sign that the plane had depressurized and that the temperature inside was basically the, the, the air temperature at the altitude uh, they were flying, which was you know well, well, well below zero in the minus 60s. Um, but there was no structural damage to the plane. So there was no bomb. Um, there was no hole that pilots could see. Uh, there was some sort of insidious depressurization that happened um, uh, over the course of the, fly, uh, the, the plane ascending, uh, taking off over Florida. The, the people inside, basically, they went to sleep and uh, from lack of oxygen, and then they died. They died a very peaceful, uh, even if you call it death. And, um, and so that's, that, that, would, that much is, is very clear. That case has been closed. No one caused this something happened it's probably somebody's fault along the line that no one will ever know because there's no evidence to prove it and once again yet another contrast for stewart such a jarring shocking death for the public to witness versus him dying in a very peaceful way as you say yet another yeah. contrast but 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 in an, if you look at it another way tucker it's it's perfect um how would Payne Stewart have wanted to die? He would want it, he, he would want to go go out this way with with the world watching. Yeah, it was fireworks for sure. I mean, that's what it really felt like watching him at the end. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about all of this, and I definitely encourage all the listeners to go pick up a copy of The Last Stand of Payne Stewart by Kevin Robbins, which will be out this October from Hachette Books. Kevin, last chance for shout-outs now. Anybody you'd like to mention? Anybody that needs to get a shout-out before we wrap this up? Well, um, I'm really, yeah, of course. Um, so... Payne Stewart's family and friends are very protective of his story and his legacy. And I, I, I should acknowledge, and I do this in the book, that his widow Tracy, who didn't contribute to this story, and that is fine because I really didn't, I really didn't need her. Um, uh, she's written a book of her own. Her story is, is, is there for everyone to see. But Tracy gave, gave me her blessing. To, to pursue this book. And with that blessing, I was able to 
have really good constructive um, and sometimes intimate visits with with people like Hal Sutton, Payne, uh, Paul Azinger, Tom Lehman, Mark O'Meara, Ben Crenshaw, his caddy Mike Hicks, his friends from SMU, Lamar Haynes, Charlie Adams, Mark Hanrahan. I could go on and on, but I just, I just, I want people to know that everybody who should want to keep Payne Stewart's story alive did that for me in the reporting of this book. Well, that's remarkable that you've got so many of those legendary players to contribute as well and definitely yeah. respect all of the work that I can see that went into writing this as well as just how masterful your command of the English language is. I can definitely tell you're a teacher and someone that has done quite a bit of writing. So really riveting read, you guys. I got a preview copy that I have not finished entirely, but I've been tearing through already. And I can say it's definitely worth a read. So be sure to pick up a copy of The Last Stand of Payne Stewart by Kevin Robbins when it comes out in October. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I definitely appreciate it, man, and hope to catch up with you again down the line when you publish yet another wonderful book. Oh, Tucker, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Let's run it back again someday. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, take care. Okay, bye-bye.